Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 174, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And here we are in the UK at the start of another bank holiday weekend. The sun is shining. It's, it's a pure orgy of flesh in the studio. <laughs> Joe came in with his legs out. <laughs> Good job this is audio only. <laughs> yeah, it's the first thing they said to me. I was like, yeah, it's hot out. Like, <laughs> I'm sticky. <laughs> yeah, you can smell me and Ravi. So. <laughs> but we've had a manic couple of weeks. I mean, uh, I just got back from Poland the other day where I was out there in Warsaw for Pixel Heaven. And I've got to say, I mean, you know when you go, like, you know, obviously the other side of the continent, and mm. I'd never been to Poland before. Didn't really know what to expect. I knew the event was very highly rated. Everyone had talked about how amazing it was. But then I'm thinking, oh, you know, it's... It's a long way away, different language and everything. I don't expect anyone out there to really know the podcast. Must have had about 30 people come over to me and go, oh, listen to the podcast every week, love it. Which That's is awesome. like Just showing the, off a little bit now, aren't you, Dan? It's not. <laughs> well, how do you even recognise me when I just speak on the podcast? That's another thing. So. <laughs> this is true. It is weird when that happens, actually. <laughs> it is amazing, though. So, I mean, it, it was a great event as well. So I was out there for three days. Um, did a panel with David Pleasance, you know, from Commodore talking about his book. Then on the Saturday, I hosted a panel with uh, Andrew and Rob Hewson talking oh, about yeah. Houston Consultants. Great turnout and some really good machines there as well. One good thing about it is I did have a bit of time to actually play in a few of the machines. Ended up sitting down in front of an ESCOM PC and playing Prince of Persia for about two hours on a Saturday night. That was quite fun. That doesn't happen very often for you, actually, at these panels, No, it does doesn't. It, so. Never do. And I, I thought, <laughs> I'm going to make an effort and sit down. And the, the weather was nice. We were sat outside for quite a long time. Um, and then on the night, John Hare's band, the Sensible Band, he went on, you know, did a set doing all the songs from Cannon oh, nice. and set. That was amazing. <laughs> that was a great end to the weekend. So, uh, yeah, it was a wonderful weekend. I mean, first time I've been to Poland. But, yes, thank you for the warm reception, everyone at Pixel Heaven. It was brilliant. Well, I got down to Southwest Amiga Group in uh, Chipping Sodbury, which I actually thought was a made-up name. <laughs> I didn't know that there was a place called Chipping Sodbury. But this was awesome. This... Uh, was actually sponsored by Steve Jones. Yeah. Um, so he kind of paid for all the tables at the event. And he's a guy behind Checkmate Digital. We've had him on before. He's done these really good new Amiga cases. Yeah, he? and he had some final versions of the Amiga cases. And my God, they... Like, I thought, you know, oh, it might have a little 3D printed kind of feel or it might feel... These are like proper injection molded quality cases. It's beautiful. And it's amazing actually being at an Amiga show, which previously would have been seven people in a room. Yeah. It was now 50, the place was overflowing, and there was new products there. There was new kind of games and stuff. It was crazy. You know, you mentioned then there's 50 people at the Southwest Amiga Group. Funnily enough, when I was over in um, in Poland at Pixel Heaven, they had a big stack of old magazines, and I was going through them. There's a few English mags there. And there was a, an issue of Amiga format from about 1998, and they did a, a show visit to Swag, yeah. Southwest Amiga Group. They had 12 members then. Yeah. And that's 20 years <laughs> there ago. There you go. And, it, so, and, it, and they're all increasing yeah. with these member groups. So I also went to Howard's house um, afterwards, Dubious Engineering, and uh, we got a bit drunk and watched Eurovision and worked on the Amiga laptop, which... Good time to have a soldering iron in your yeah, hand when you yeah. a few drinks. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we ended up... Um, Getting it to power to the point that the screen powered off battery power, but uh, we need like a new regulator thingy to get the batteries going. So that's going to keep going. Now, Dr- that drunken engineering. It's got to be the best kind <laughs> of engineering, apparently. I see a YouTube channel in that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I mean, for people who might not be keeping up with this, you're building an Amiga laptop with Howard. Yeah, yeah. You just, always wanted one. Just for fun, always wanted one. And he's a crazy battery man. So we're using all recycled materials he's ripped out, used laptop batteries. 
And at the moment, it does resemble a bomb. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> we're going to upload videos later. It's like a toaster was, on the side of it or something. Well, he was saying, you know, I could... Oh, he was saying, you know, I could take it home on the train. And I was like, right, is this going to start smoking? I'm an Asian dude with a beard on a train. <laughs> this box it's just ticking. Like, yeah. What's that? But yeah, I mean, it, it does look interesting. I'll be honest, I you sent me a few pictures of your Amiga laptop. I probably wouldn't leave it plugged in the house unattended when I'm out. But <laughs> Yeah, eventually it's going to look slick and yeah, all, yeah. All, all nice. But at the moment, it does look like a death trap, yeah. That's not the end of it. We've got more events coming up as well. We're off to Norway in about oh, a month. Yeah, retro yeah. spill messing, and yeah. then I'm off to Brazil for a while, so I might be doing a report on Tech Toy. Yeah. I'm going to be talking to some people because I'm off to Brazil twice this year, and they're the only real big Sega hardware group going, so that's going to be amazing. Well, Tech Toy, they are, I mean, people might not be familiar with them. They're a company who Sega officially license. The Sega brands to them in South America, don't they? Yeah, and then they've made their own versions of games. So they've got like the Sega Master System Girl, which is a pink Sega Master System. That's, that's why you're going, isn't it? That is why he's, go- he's getting free. He's getting one for each one of us. <laughs> and, a, and a wireless aerial. And then they have uh, the Mega Drive 4. Um, they've got stuff like Mortal yeah. Kombat for the NES. Yeah, not for the, <laughs> yeah. For the Master System. Master System even, yeah, yeah. It's it's absolutely crazy. See, I mean, we are going on. You're off to Japan as well? Yeah, I go to Japan yeah. next week to Tokyo. Yeah, so you can do some game hunting when you're out there. Um, I'm going for my 30th birthday, and the plan is on the day I turn 30, we are spending the entire day in Akibara, I believe it's pronounced. I mm. might have just butchered that, which is essentially the gaming central of Japan. And there's many, 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 many retro gaming shops Retro game centers, etc. There's a Sega world as well, so really looking oh. forward to that. We'll be documenting it all as well. Yeah, your so. wife will have a big smile on the face that oh, day. She's going to be loving it. We're going to Disneyland for two days before, so <laughs> sweeten the deal a yeah. bit. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, really busy couple of months coming up. If you are coming to any of the events we're going to be doing, if you're going to be in Norway actually for Retro Spill Mess, and that's going to be a great weekend. Yeah. Um, I'll put details of where you can get your tickets in our show notes at theretrohour.com. We've got a brilliant show this week as well now because you know we've all been all over the place. Uh, the other afternoon, actually, I interviewed um, our guest this week on my own. He's a really interesting guy, William Anderson. Now, he runs a company called Awaken Games today, but in the past, I mean, he's worked for some incredible companies, Virgin Games, you know, that's really where he made his name. Um, he's very interesting because he's really into, like, RTS games, and in this interview, we talk about how he loved Ultima, and Richard Garriott was kind of, you know, one of his inspirations. But it turned out that, you know, his main thing he's known for is platform games. Yeah, and when he was working for these companies, it was some of the best platformer games that were out. Like, you were saying... He's got Aladdin, Cool yeah. Spot... Yeah. And uh, Abe's Odyssey, which I didn't know yeah. either. I knew about Aladdin and Callspot, but I didn't know about Abe's Lion Odyssey. King as well. You started to yeah. work on, I think, just that's kind of when he... And uh, Abe's Odyssey was really late for kind of a platformer, but it was really developed in a, in a different way, wasn't it? As well, well. it's era as well. I mean, cause it was obviously the PlayStation kind of 3D era. Yeah. I remember like, you know, Clockwork and Night kind of came out yeah, around yeah, that yeah, time yeah, with that yeah. kind of look as well. What I loved about Abe's Odyssey is that it was a complete departure from the cutesy kind of fluffy mm, platforms yeah. we had before. It was a slimy blob who farted essentially, wasn't yeah. it? And it was like, <laughs> as a teenager, and I was like, wow, that's the best thing in the world. I remember getting the PlayStation demo with yeah. Abe's Odyssey on it, you know, the original demo which came with the PlayStation, playing that. And my brother just been like, why are you playing that? And I was like, because he farts, look at him. Like. <laughs> it does not get better than this. Yeah. And Cool Spot as well. I mean, Yeah, that, that was a, a real commercial one as well, wasn't it? Because that was Cool Spot was the 7-Up. Yeah. Um, like little dot on the logo. Yeah. And yeah, if you think about like commercial games, Amiga had like, Super Frog with LucasAid, that was really cheap. But then yeah. they also had 
Well, there was a Quavers one, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah push, push over, push over, jumps. Yeah. Zool. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, right around that era, there was a lot of kind of uh, big companies. I mean, even in this interview, you worked on Global Gladiators, and McDonald's were involved in that. Junk food and uh, gaming just went hand in hand in the late 80s and early 90s by the sounds of To be it. fair, that's still a winning combination. Yeah, exactly. But <laughs> Apparently caused Dominic Diamond to leave Channel 4, but... <laughs> okay. You're right, yeah. Dexter cause... Fletcher came on because there was the whole McDonald's controversy over... Uh, I heard that right, and uh, we've, uh, you know, we always get people tweeting us going, why don't you get Dominic Diamond on to talk about Games Master? We did an episode with Dave Perry yeah. years ago. Dominic doesn't talk about Games Master anymore. We've asked him about ten times. <laughs> but the thing is... Yeah, there's this rumour that he left Games Master in Series 3, I think, wasn't it? Because McDonald's sponsored the show and he was against it. But he came back in Series 4 and it was still sponsored by McDonald's. Yeah. So, so I'm not sure I'd buy that. Unless how the, bizarre. The wave the check in front of him or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. There we go. If we ever we get changed, him, we'll ask him. We now. changed the nuggets <laughs> for you, mate. It's 100% chicken now. <laughs> Free milkshakes. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Everyone likes Mackey D's milkshakes. <laughs> so uh, you'll be talking about, actually, one of the things I chatted to him about, you know, whether he liked having these uh, kind of, you know, big companies sponsoring the games and whether that kind of felt like selling out a bit. So we'll talk about that in just a bit with this week's special guest William Anderson coming up on the Retro Hour podcast in around 20 minutes from now. Now we're going to update you on what's been happening in the world of retro because every week on this show we look through all the news stories and keep you up to date, save you googling around and tweeting. I do got a lot of people you know getting in touch saying that that it's like you know we like you giving the news because I haven't got time to read all the, the websites and everything in the week so that's one thing we do as well as a guest but we couldn't do this podcast every week without your support. Now Obviously, this is completely optional. Think of it as a little tip jar, but we do have a little section on our website at theretrohour.com. If you'd like to put a couple of quid, a few euros, a couple of dollars into the pot, it all 100% goes back into the running of the show, helps us pay for the costs as well, and it's really appreciated. And for making a donation of any amount, you will find your place in the very prestigious... Drumroll, please, Joe. That's quite a good one. He's in a band, what do you expect? (laughs) The Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Just like this week, Gareth McKee. John Monterano. Mark Simpson. And Andrew Nixon, who all made donations into the running of the show. And if you'd like to do the same, we accept it via PayPal on our website at theretrohour.com. Now, just before we get into the news, another big supporter of this show, and uh, they have been for a few months now, we really appreciate their support, is The Economist. Now, The Economist is the smart guide to the forces impacting your world. And, you know, obviously, from the title, you'd expect them to cover stuff like economics and finance, but it covers so much more in there as well, including politics, business, science, technology, video games as well, which is one of the reasons that we love them, because they have a different angle on gaming stories and all the kind of stuff you read everywhere else. Like, you've been reading this really interesting article about Nintendo. They got me. So I'm clicking around, and how Nintendo told gamers to get lost. And I was like, whoa, Nintendo can't do now wrong. <laughs> What's this about? <laughs> Zelda, one of my favorite game franchises of all time. Not what I thought it would be, but still a very interesting read. I was kind of skimming over it, reading through it, trying to find where, the t- where they said to get, you know, telling gamers to get lost. Then actually realizing it was actually a really subtle... Um, segue into actually talking about the development of Zelda which I thought was actually really interesting and all of a sudden I'm learning some some things I didn't actually know about Zelda which I thought was really interesting so yeah Joe his head down for about 20 minutes or like trying to talk to him <laughs> it's completely blanketed us but that is what the economists do I mean they, they sift through the noise and the focus on information that you're going to find interesting and I mean they've been around for over 170 years so you know more important than ever that you get news and stories you can trust in this day and age now we'd like you 
to get a free copy of The Economist. All you have to do, if you live in the UK, this is open to you right now. You'll get a copy in the post. It'll come through your door. For your free print copy of The Economist, text the word RETRO and send that to 78070. And, of course, you'll be helping out the podcast as well. So get your phone. Do this right now. Text RETRO and send it to 78070. And get your copy of The Economist, The Smart Guide to the Forces Changing Your World. Right then. Do you remember the OUYA? Yeah, I remember because you wouldn't shut up about it. I remember when you first got it, you were like, there's this Linux machine. Have you seen it, guys? It's going to be revolutionary. I've never actually played on it. I think I played in it at your house. Yeah. It's once. crap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it, it was Android-based, wasn't it? And uh, it was a bit underpowered for what it really needed to do. Yeah, I think it was a Tegra 3 chipset. It was essentially, I mean, looking back on it, I think it was like 2013 this came out. And at the time, it was one of the biggest crowdfunders in history. Yeah. Mm. You know, it raised a fortune. I think it was like 8 million or something it raised. Um, and it, I'm sure most people remember what it was, but it was a, a very small little console that you could hold in the palm of your hand. Yep. Um, it was really an Android tablet without the screen. Pretty much. My first experience of it was Dan telling me about this revolutionary console that's coming out <laughs> all right i was wrong <laughs> <laughs> and he backed it and i was like wicked awesome and then uh i came over played it in 2013 so i think it was it went up for backing in 2012 came yeah. out 2013 played it and i was just like i was playing it with dan's wife and i'm just like this is just smartphone games i'm playing here like but you're playing them on the tv <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the controller looked nice it was a nice controller. Well, you know what? Everyone always slags a controller, and I actually thought it was all right. I, I mean, thought it was all right. It had what was quite revolutionary at the time is it had like a touch-sensitive touch, um, t- bit in the middle that you could move like, yeah. the cursor around the screen. Obviously, the PlayStation 4 came along with that a few months after, yeah. and I imagine that was probably a coincidence. They both must have been working on that at the same time. Um, but it was, I mean, the idea behind the OUYA was that it was going to be a platform that would be targeted at indie developers. Mm. And I remember the promises I made at first. Every game you would download would have a free demo that you could try on the store. Yeah. Um, and it was really meant to be yeah, the, the indie developer's platform. But then, you know, piece by piece, it started to fall apart and the business model didn't but work. Interestingly, and... it's saying that they, they were purchased by Razer. Yeah, they were. Well. Yeah, a few years ago. Yeah. yeah, a few years ago now. Yeah, Razer purchased a brand. But what is <laughs> really, really bizarre is they've kept the Ouya store and the services alive. And this baffled me. Yeah. I didn't. I thought it was dead in the water I mean, it is but I thought it was gone it switched off ages ago but they're switching it off June 25th they've announced yeah so get your downloads in download your games so they're there on your yeah. because if they're not you're not playing them anymore yeah so if, <laughs> if you've got any like you know store credit or anything like that get it used up not that there was that much worth playing no. on the store I remember some game with a frog who ran around like slough or somewhere I remember slough yeah and then slough he, frog then he'd fly off he'd, I've got a feeling he had like flatulence and he'd fly away or something that's a running theme in this week's show and there was um no breaks valet that was it's actually quite a giggle but it looked like you know a hand-drawn game from 1992. Yeah, rem- um, reminiscent of some Flash games that I'd play at school and stuff like that. So. But yeah. also, it's an Android device, so I guess you could just flash the firmware and put whatever you want on it in the end, if, if yeah. all the games go. Well, know. that's the thing. I mean, what, what it did actually provide, I mean, for the time, it was a pretty decent little emulation box. Mm. And on the store, there is stuff like, you know, MAME. I mean, there are outdated versions now, but, I mean, I'm sure there are ways to root it and sideload applications onto it and things. But, I mean... 
you are essentially working with 2012 spec hardware. But I mean, for retro games, I mean, it could run stuff like um, Super Nintendo, Mega Drive emulators, yeah. and like you know, 16-bit. What, kind what of about games. entertainment stuff like Cody? Did it do that, or did it play videos? And yeah, there's a version of Cody for it. Um, oh, so it said it is just you know you can put Android on there. So mm. you know, if you've got one lying around, it actually does make a pretty nice little emulation box for like 80s and early 90s kind of games. Struggle a bit with like PlayStation and N64 stuff it can't do, but rest in peace, the Ouya. So. Yeah, might be a collector's item in the future. Who knows? Bless them. Now, let's t- <laughs> totally unrelated, but let's talk about the new Atari VCS console. Another paperweight. <laughs> <laughs> well, this, um, obviously we've talked about this on the show before. This ended up on Indiegogo a couple of years ago, um, and it was successfully backed, and people have kind of been waiting for it for a while, but obviously they were very vague about the details of what this system could oh, do. Oh, is this the one that was the Atari box and then changed yeah. later on into the Atari VCS? Okay. This was the one where they they said they were at E3 a few years ago, didn't they? And it was actually turned out to be a hotel room. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> also, a lot of the games that have been announced, not they're, they're kind of classic Atari ones, yeah. aren't they? So there's not been anything massively revolutionary or, or, or for anything to really justify having a new console. Well, the Unlike thing- the... Uh, Coleco, the, the intellivi- Intellivision. Intellivision. Yeah, the, Cle- Coleco was the other one that failed. <laughs> that one never came out. God, so but I, th- I think because people did get burned by the Coleco Chameleon, and that was obviously the big kind of scam in the world of retro yeah. gaming in recent years, people are a bit dubious now, I think, about companies that are not completely transparent. But they've actually showed off what looks like some new hardware for the Atari VCS. And not only have they got kind of a recreation of the iconic one-button Atari joystick, but also they've been showing off these pictures of a, uh, you know, what looks like a modern controller, essentially. Essentially like a, an Atari Pro controller. That's what it reminds me <laughs> of. Looking at that, how similar is that to an Xbox One controller? It's, it literally looks like they've got the mould of an <laughs> Xbox One controller, like a Mad Cat's version of it or something, made it, like, I'm sure... The button placement is exactly the same as well. The that, buttons are the same. It's, it's got just, the burger, the three but three lines. It's just, yeah. It's just but, they've but just got the, uh, the yeah, the, the analog stick just doesn't look nice. And then they've got the big red button where the D pad usually is, and then obviously they've got the D pad slower but, down. But it's, which, it's a circular D pad, which is strange. Yeah, it looks yeah. reminiscent like, of like a Mega Drive controller or something. Yeah, yeah, or, or a cheap third party one. Yeah, but I do like the. Um, Atari oh, single joystick. I re- the thing that they've got there on the detail is the orange circle around the edge. That was exactly how they used to have them on the old yes. Yeah. Because you, that was the first. Yeah, yeah. So, so my brother used to have a uh, an Atari twenty six hundred, and when I was a little kid, just a toddler, I remember stealing his joystick and just chewing the end of the. <laughs> and the, the Atari one would be the nicest tasting one. Have <laughs> <laughs> he washed his hands before he played it? Yeah. <laughs> were, were you like teething with it then? As yeah, it? yeah. Right. <laughs> well, there you go. If the console then, fails, you could all sell them to like Mothercare. Years there. later, <laughs> I, I found it and then plugged it into my Amiga, and I was like, "What, what system is this from?" I remember it and then looked at the bottom Atari. Oh yeah, yeah, because it was yeah. just a nine. Saw all the teeth yeah. marks around it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they were pretty rugged, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're now saying that the Atari VCS hardware is almost ready for final production, and you know. They've been set. The thing about it is their communications actually improved a bit recently. They've got a Medium account where they're doing some blogging on. And obviously those that pre-order through Indiegogo were hoping that this is all going to happen and everything. Mm-hmm. Looking through the comments on this article in Engadget, everyone's like, oh, vaporware, vaporware. But it looks like they are actually trying to do their bit now to communicate better than they had in the past. And they are promising that this is going to be out before the end of 2019. Yeah. So in the next six months, the Indiegogo backers should start to receive them. 
if they don't, then obviously we'll talk about it as and when. But I think they had some problems at the start and obviously they did it wrong. And But I think because the retro gaming community has been burnt so badly, especially stuff like the Vega and all that kind of stuff in recent years, it's kind of like people are very sceptical. People skeptical. are just too scared. Like yeah. you said, people have been ripped off. Yeah. People, money's tight. You and, know? I, and I think that American Atari market as well, when I went over there, Jesus, they love Atari. Yeah. Like, mm. Atari is absolutely everywhere. So for people to be into that and back that in America, especially, I think, if mm. it does come out and it has decent stuff, it might. <laughs> if. It, it, yeah, yeah, if it does it, it might um, be all right. Ever, <laughs> like, ever, ever the sceptic, Ravi. Yeah. <laughs> God, uh, someone said the other day, oh, I was listening to episode 60, where Ravi was going on about how the Switch is going to be a total failure. And I was just like, oh no. I do remember you saying that vividly. You're like, I might be wrong, but I don't think it's going to take off. So I was going to save that for like a few years. and then yeah. Just a sound bite. Yeah, yeah. Just play it. Play it when you're like, you know, your big birthday or something. Like I was like, oh, it. hindsight. And let's reminisce about our childhood. This is a little interesting topic that I thought we'd, we'd chat about on this week's show. I've been chatting to a Jörg from Scene World. Um, Ravi and I were actually on the Scene World podcast recently, weren't we? Yeah, yeah. So if you haven't checked out that episode, I'll put that on our show notes as well. And Jürgen, he's, he's talking about kind of like his memories of, you know, gaming in Germany when he was a teenager and a kid where he used to go. Well, this idea, it would be nice to kind of get like listener stories of their, of their game shops. So I put this on our Facebook page. The question is, what was your game shop as a kid? What was it like and what is it today? Hmm. So if you check out, just search for the Retro Hour podcast on Facebook. You can find it in there or just drop us a tweet at Retro Hour UK. We'd love to get some more of your stories because I think there is something in this getting a little kind of a page made with all these stories on. But I thought it'd be interesting to ask you guys. I mean, where did you go? So I've got a couple of places that come to mind. So my earliest memories are renting Sega Mega Drive games from the local news agents. Funny enough, uh, the local precinct, they actually rented out Mega Drive games which I thought was amazing as a child um, and then it moved and then we moved to uh, renting from Blockbuster and as we moved to the PlayStation 1 it became slightly illegal and what we used to do is we used to rent PlayStation 1 games take them to my cousins copy them for us <laughs> <laughs> and then take them back the next day and have a brand new PlayStation game for 99 pence um, so that's really like my earliest memories I can't really remember other than the big chains like Argos and Toys R Us any kind of smaller independent game shops until really until I was a little bit older kind of like the late 90s uh, we had a place in Nottingham called Another World which is now Forbidden Planet if if I think I'm right about that Um, which at the time still sold like NES and Sega and you know a lot of the older stuff like Spectrum and stuff like that especially when like PS2 was big how cheap were the games then for like NES and stuff like a pound yeah like <laughs> nothing you know what I mean up. I know if I could go back in time um, but now really we've not really got anything in Nottingham unfortunately well I used to go to Electronics Boutique that, yeah. that was the big one and Amiga mm. games there would probably be 30 to 40 pounds boxed or even up to 60 Sometimes. Uh, so about what they are now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Everyone's like, game has got more expensive. It doesn't really. Yeah. It's just back to its original. But then I remember going to a very dodgy red light district area in Nottingham. And <laughs> Typical rabbit. And looking. <laughs> at, I was young. I was, like, and I was young. I was naive game. looking for Amiga games. Yeah. And, and, and I was walking past the shop. And My I saw pants le- just fell off. <laughs> <laughs> I saw loads of um, kind of Amigas and stuff. And then I went inside. And it, it was called Tech Exchange, and it, this was the piracy heaven. Right. This guy would have 
even PlayStation games on his Amiga and he'd just burn them off on the spot, off a chip PlayStation. People would come in and try and sell PC games to him. He'd say, get out. <laughs> <laughs> is, is this a guy you tell me about who uh, had quite bad hygiene? Oh, yeah. So he'd also go to the toilet and then... Um, Return back and hand you the discs, and you could tell he hadn't washed his hands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was it was pretty grim, but but I bet he didn't chew any I bet he didn't chew any joysticks you bought from him. No, <laughs> and now his place is a frock shop. Right, I have to watch how I say that. <laughs> See, I Still go around there. <laughs> <laughs> I remember being there was kind of two places I used to go, and and then there was the electronics boutiques and mm. all that as well. But there was a little local. My parents lived in the northeast at the time when I grew up, and there was like three shops that a bit of a chain in Darlington, um, Stockton and Middlesbrough, and they were called Chips Computers. Okay. And I remember I went in because I got a Commodore Plus 4, like years after it got discontinued, because my mum got it for like 25 quid in the late 80s. And I went in there, like, you know, it's just after Christmas, I like, trying to find some games, all excited, walked in there, like, outrun posters on the wall and everything. <laughs> I went to the guy and went, uh, have you got games for the Commodore? And he, he pointed to Commodore 64 games. Well, oh, not that one, then Commodore Plus 4. And he went, oh, um, hang on a minute. Then he went out the back chatted to another guy, came out with this key, walked to where all the games were, went down on his hands and knees, undid this panel at the bottom of the games, pulled out this dusty crate, give it a blow. Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> exactly like that. Thing. And he went, I think some of these might be for the plus four. And I was like, oh, God, this is going to be a hard system to collect for. And I think I must have bought, he probably had about a crate of games. Over that, like, a couple of years, I bought them all. Then one day I went in and he said, no, no, we haven't got any more. Just throw your computer in the bin. And I thought, dude, is that my only computer? That's harsh. And then that that only shut down actually about probably about two years ago. And I think it's a, it's a solicitor's office or something now. Then there's another one called Topsoft in Darlington I used to go to as well. And that was when I first saw the Amiga 1200. Before yeah, I'd read yeah. about it, I walked in. It was like this long Amiga 600. But it used to have everything like um, you know CD TV, CD32s, Mega CD. I saw mm-hmm. for the first time in there. And the guys in that shop were really cool. And me and my dad would go in and like. It, it, the guy was really passionate yeah. and he'd be like oh, have you checked out this new thing it's got the 32X and we'd sit there have a go on it and try this game and they'd like, dad can we have one no I <laughs> <laughs> had no money obviously but yeah and now that is um, it's actually a cocktail bar and I went in on my brother's um, he had an engagement party a couple of years ago and we sat there like in the same spot he used to sit there playing like Bart Simpson versus Space Mutants, like having a cocktail, which is a little bit bizarre. That's a bit yeah. weird, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So I, I've just remembered as well. Joe mentioned another world, and yeah. we used to go upstairs in another world, and there'd be all the dodgy manga porn. Yeah. And <laughs> then, top floor, you, you got go, the manga you, porn, you, the BB yeah. guns, and the VH ta- VHS tapes. <laughs> yeah, and then and then you go there, but these guys would have like a Dreamcast or a really early set system, a Saturn or something, set up on a proper PVM. High right. quality CRT display, and they'd be yeah. like, "Look at that! It's gorgeous." Yeah. I remember going they in. They knew what they were doing. I remember going in, and they had House of the Dead two uh, set up on the Dreamcast, you know, and you could have a go on the CRT yeah, with yeah. the guns and stuff like that. But yeah, no, some fond memories in there. I think it was four floors, if I remember rightly. Yeah. yeah. Now it's a uh, it's an estate agent. <laughs> <laughs> he only knew what happened in those yeah. walls back in the day. So it'd be good to get some of your stories as well. So the question is, where was your game shop when you were a kid? What was it like? And what is it today? So drop us a tweet at Retro Hour UK, or you can email show at theretrohour.com or just a comment on the thread on our Facebook page. Um, and I'll ship those links in our show notes as well. Good to get some stories, actually, I think. Yeah, we'll, we'll read them out next week yeah, yeah. as well. Yeah, absolutely. Now, we love computer music. You know, we love messing around and using different products and stuff and seeing what sounds you can get out of these old systems. One thing I looked for a couple of years ago was um, the Spectrum. Now, do you remember the Spectrum? This was a little drum machine made by Cheetah, who were the joystick manufacturer for the ZX Spectrum. I would have actually bought a ZX Spectrum just so I could play around with the, the Spectrum because it was that cool, I thought. 
Yeah, this is a, a little cool device. And uh, we've interviewed a lot of people that have mentioned the Spectrum as kind of the help of their development of making mods and becoming a composer. And here we go. So That's the Spectrum. <laughs> spectrum Beats. Uh. Yeah, it's got that kind of old school style. Great 80s, yeah. Yeah, and it's built into the um, new ZX Spectrum Next, yeah. which is pretty awesome. But one thing is, you, you couldn't change the samples. So um, a guy called Piano Matt uh, is very kind of happy because he's been able to change the original drum samples to new ones. And the way that he did this was he kind of determined how what the format of the original samples were in. So he had to kind of reverse engineer it. And uh, apparently it's stored in an 8-bit format at approximately 20 kilohertz. Right. And then he figured that out, so he was able to load the replacement ROMs into the RAM of the emulator and then access these new kind of drum machines. So I guess you could have samples of anything. Congas, Tabla, you could have like some really awesome Spectrum stuff. So hopefully this hack might be involved with the Spectrum Next as well and... I can't. I can't wait to see what's going to happen with the audio on the Spectrum because that new Spectrum Next has three chips in it, basically. So it's going to be absolutely nuts. Well, Joe, you want a fresh new sound for the band? <laughs> well, this all just went over my head. I was just like <laughs> looking at Ravi the whole time, just like wow. <laughs> <laughs> I can see. I think there is because you know this whole kind of grimy kind of like industrial sounds coming yeah. quite back in. I think you should incorporate a spectrum into your uh, into just your there in the background of the next EP or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, that Destrum you did before. I mean, you could you'd probably sample that, but it's, uh, it's a new piece of equipment. So, I mean, it is cool when people f- figure out stuff like this, and especially reverse engineering this old hardware and making it do stuff it was never designed to do. Yeah, it says you know he's been able to generate his own tape, complete with the proper headers and labels for each drum sound as well. So. If you want to read more about that, it's on Hackaday, which um, is one of our favourite websites. And uh, I'll put that and everything else we talked about this week in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, just before we get into this week's special guest, William Anderson, have you ever wanted a Game Boy Watch? No. Who doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> Ravi. <laughs> I wanted one of the TV ones at school that the guys used to use to annoy the teacher. Right. You know, she'd always press pause and then... Oh, the infrared one. Yeah, yeah, and then they press play again I on the video them. player. I God, remember them. That was an annoying device. Teachers must have hated that. Very reminiscent that. of like a Home Alone gadget. <laughs> or Bart Simpson would have had yeah, one. Yeah, something like that, yeah. I do remember seeing those actually in the window of like Dixon's or something and thinking, like, I think they're about £40. Pounds. It was obviously way up my price for range as a kid. I remember thinking how cool that would be. Especially when you made, you know, made to watch those boring documentaries and stuff yeah. at school. You thought, teacher goes, that's fast forward it from you. <laughs> yeah, that would be awesome. Uh, well, this Game Boy Watch um, that is currently... Uh, just gone live for pre-orders. doesn't do all that much, in all honesty. But it is officially an endorsed Nintendo product. Mm. And it really is a, a miniature Game Boy Color that, ironically, doesn't have a color display, that you put on your wrist and it looks a bit like a Game Boy and tells the time. So I read it, I saw the article, and I thought, oh, this is going to be an actual Game Boy Color on your wrist. Mm. It's going to be some sort of, you know, Android, whatever kind of thing. And I clicked on it, and it looks like when you buy a packet of sweets and it's like in a plastic <laughs> cell phone. <laughs> I was like, to be oh. honest, saying this is an official Nintendo product, it does look like it's been 3D printed. Yeah, and that's it right. It doesn't yeah. look, it looks cheap. Yeah. To be honest. And How much is it? Uh, well, they're, they're, it's currently going. It's got pre-order. Twenty-four ninety-nine pounds. There you go. <laughs> Expected to ship next it, month. It, you know what? It will sell just because of fashion at the moment, you know, but... Because retro's in. I reckon there'll be loads in, yeah. of Chinese knockoffs of these, though. Oh, right, no, they'll be pumping them out. 
Yeah. You could probably, three, like you said, you could 3D print your own and just get a cheap little digital clock and put it in there. You've sure. got yeah. an iWatch, haven't you? Are yeah. you able to run anything on there, like emulators? Yeah. No, the Apple, as far as I know, the Apple Watch hasn't been hacked. So they haven't jailbroken no, no. it. Oh, as far okay. as I know. I mean, I don't really keep up with the jailbreaking scene all that much, but I haven't seen anyone doing anything like that with it. Because that would be the good handheld Game Boy, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's what I yeah. thought. Screen, That's what yeah. I was expecting, but... No, here we well, are. Well, do you want to hear the features of this uh, Game Boy Watch? <laughs> it tells it, the time. It does, it does <laughs> no. Not just that. Time, date, and alarm. Oh. Yeah, with the Game Boy buttons. A plastic strap. And officially licensed by Nintendo. Ooh. So there you go. That's Look, the future. Looking at it, though, I can't imagine that got the Nintendo seal of quality. No. <laughs> yeah. I haven't seen that anywhere on it, but, you know. Like you said, there will be people that buy that. I mean, yeah. yeah just because just it's something a bit naff, I guess, isn't it? So if you're doing to get your own, though, um, it is kind of cute, I must say. We'll put that in our show notes and everything else we talked about this week at theretrohour.com. Right, we'll have a wonderful bank holiday weekend if you are listening in the UK. If you want to come along and uh, check out, Ravi and I are going to be in Norway at the end of the next month at Retro Spill Messen. Uh, we'll put a uh, little link to get your tickets as well in our show notes alongside everything else we talked about this week. And now let's get the story of classic games like Global Gladiators, Abe's Odyssey, The Jungle Book, Aladdin, with this week's special guest, William Anderson. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time to welcome this week's very special guest. It is our pleasure to welcome to the show the amazing William Anderson. Thank you so much for joining us. Happy to be here. Now, let's just start your story right at the beginning. We always like to get a little bit of background on our guests and kind of find out, you know, your your early credentials in the world of computers and video games. And do you remember when you first saw a video game or got to play one? Um, that would have been Pong when I was really young in Florida. I saw a Pong machine in uh, arcade I went to. Or actually, it was a pizza place. It wasn't a, quite an arcade yet. <laughs> wow, so that was very early on in the days of arcades. Yeah. Actually, I, it didn't really dawn on me as much then as when I got a little older and uh, the arcade machines started getting more advanced and more colorful and more sounds and stuff like that. And And then, of course, I started getting into the early game systems like the Atari 2600 and kind of went up from there. And what titles do you remember from that then that you were you're fond of? Oh God! <laughs> now you now you tested my memory. <laughs> I think I think it was if I remember right, Adventure or Venture. Yeah. And then uh, of course went to the Nintendo and then the Super Nintendo and Sega Genesis and on and on. <laughs> <laughs> well, how did your story start in developing and designing games? Then what made you want to actually create them? Well, I, I grew up in the, my hometown is Big Bear Lake, California. And uh, I used to, we used to go to the arcades to play games, but of course it got kind of expensive doing that every week. And uh, my brother had bought an Atari uh, 800 computer to play games at home, so it was cheaper for us. And after a while, it was kind of a pain because up here in the mountains, we didn't have computer stores. Yeah. So. Anytime we needed a new game, we had to drive down the hill to get it, which didn't come that often. Uh, so really, it was kind of a necessity to start looking into, okay, I got a computer here. How do I actually start making my own games? And the Atari 800 was actually a capable system, wasn't it? It was a pretty decent machine for the time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was. And I, I, still, I still adore those machines today and have, I have a few of them in the garage. So around that time, how did you first get into the industry professionally? Well, I, I, I was doing shareware games on the Atari for quite a few years, but I really wasn't making a living at it. So I kind of had to take a step into my, my sub-career as an auto mechanic to kind of 
pay for my game systems and games and continued learning. And uh, during that time, I was it was uh, late 80s, and I was working on an RPG game design called The Wizard's Eye. And I knew a virgin from the magazines, the gaming magazines I was following at the time. And I didn't have time to program it or do the art for it, but I had time to write up the documentation, do the level designs and stuff like that on paper. Mm-hmm. And then just for chance, I, I piled everything together and mailed it off to Irvine, to Virgin Games. And I said, you know, here's what I got for doing this strategy game. I'd like to come program it and create it for you. And about two months later, I get a phone call saying, um, we'd like you to come down and, and talk to us about working for us. Must and have been amazing when you got that call then. Yeah, yeah, I was quite surprised because I had been turned down by a bunch of people up to that point. And actually, it was Richard Garrett at Sierra Online, or not Sierra Online, but uh, Origin Systems, mm-hmm. who had uh, convinced me to stick to it because I was getting kind of discouraged at the time that, I was putting in all this effort to break into gaming, and it still wasn't working. And I sent Richard Garrett some of my games, and he'd said, you know, it, it may take a while, but just stick to it. And about three or four months later, I sent my design off to Virgin, and everything kind of went from there. Well, those games you were making, I mean, strategy RPG games, I imagine they were a lot complex and a lot more time-intensive to create than, you know, games like platformers, for example. Well, exactly, and that, that kind of brought up the, the funny conversation when I got to Virgin Games is when I came there to interview, I thought, you know, I was going to talk to him about doing the Wizard's Eye for him that I'd sent him, and when I got into the director's office, I saw my design Bible sitting on the floor, and I was like, well, that might not be a good sign, <laughs> <laughs> and uh and he goes, well, what do you feel about designing a platform game, an action platform game? And I looked at him and I said, well, I've played them, but I've never designed one before. And he reached down on the floor and brought up my design Bible. And he says, anybody that put this much effort into a design can easily design a platform game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, platform would be a breeze after what you've worked on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you did mention Richard Garriott as well. I mean, were you playing games like um, Ultima and stuff like that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because I, I was a big fan of strategy games, still am. I like the Command & Conquer style games and stuff like that. And unfortunately, I never got a chance to actually work on one for a company, but that's always been my passion. But I kind of got, once I got a reputation of doing platform games, I kind of got stuck in that rut. <laughs> well, what was the first game you worked on at Virgin when you got there? Well, actually, it was Cool Spot. When I got hired to work on Cool Spot. And but the the license was tied up between Seven Up and the marketing company who came up with the the Cool Spot character, but they couldn't make up their mind what they wanted to get done. So they kept kind of spinning their wheels. And Martin Albert, who was the CEO of Virgin at the time, uh, he was getting frustrated with it. And he he basically pulled the plug. He said, you know, uh, we're not going to do a game for Seven Up because they can't make up their mind what they want. And my whole team got shifted over to doing um, Global Gladiators. And so Global Gladiators actually ended up being the first game published out of there that I worked on. Also at Virgin, you did level design for the um, Double Dragon game on, on the, the handheld, the Game Gear as well, didn't you? Yeah, I did a, a couple of the uh, combat rooms for it. I thought it was a pretty cool system, and they had a, a pretty interesting level design tool uh, at the time. And 
at the time I was working there, when that came about, I was already senior game designer for the studio. We had other designers, but um, I would kind of float around from project to project as things were needed. And they just wanted a little bit of diversity in some of the combat rooms for, for that game they were working on. So they asked if I'd step in and do a couple level designs. The thing about those systems I remember is, I mean, the Atari Lynx as well was another one around that time that I was impressed by. But I, I remember you, you couldn't play them for very long before your battery ran out, though. You'd, you'd end up just <laughs> plugging them into the wall, which kind of defeats the object, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the, the other thing about that, uh, that system, too, was all of my level designs were three screens wide because there really wasn't memory for anything more than that. Yeah, it was essentially a portable master system, wasn't it, really, the, the Game Gear? Oh, yeah, yeah. And if you've seen some of the level designs I did for, like, Aladdin and Cool Spot and other games, I mean, they were massive. My level designs for those um, on paper literally filled up the wall of the studio. Well, with Global Gladiators and then um, Cool Spot as well, I mean, obviously you had these big companies behind them with Global Gladiators, McDonald's, obviously, and Cool Spot was, uh, you know, the mascot for 7-Up, like you mentioned. What do you uh-huh. think of the, uh, the idea of these, like, big corporations backing these projects? Um, it's kind of a mixed blessing because when I was working for Virgin, we had earned such a good reputation with licensors that they stood out of our way when it came time to doing games. They knew we knew how to make hit games, so they weren't going to mess with us. They just said, this is our license, this is when we need it done, and we had a reputation of making sure it happened in the time scale that they needed. And so we didn't really have a problem. Only, only later when I started working for smaller studios that it became a problem because, and it's really why I started my own game company, Awaken Games, uh, because I got tired of busting my butt to make a great game design, at least what I thought was a great game design, and it was just completely trashed by the licensor because they really didn't care. They just wanted something on the shelf. Yeah, I guess back then they probably weren't too clued up on video games. Did they kind of look at it as just like, you know, another brand, like it could be a toy on a shelf or something like that? Was that as far as their understanding went? Yeah, in in some ways it was kind of like a publicity stunt or just something else to get money for. But the the funny thing is, is we were told by 7up that we make Cool Spot more recognizable to the public than their commercials ever did. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He was a cool character, though. He lived up to his name. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it was the first game that we'd actually worked on at, uh, at Virgin Games that we employed Disney-style animation, where we were actually bringing in people who were traditionally Disney kind of trained to do the animations for our games. Yeah, I had that game on the uh, the Commodore Amiga, actually, when it when it came out, and I do remember being really impressed at that kind of, almost like a flat three-dimensional look, if that makes sense, but you had those textures and stunning backgrounds as well, and yeah, the animation was very, very fluid on it, too. I mean, w- was that a lot to cram into, like, cartridge space and hardware limitations? Oh, yeah, and actually, uh, during the development of Cool Spot, and then onto Jungle Book, and then Aladdin, um, we had a a special programmer dedicated to making a tool that would take our sprites and optimize them into the smallest possible memory footprint. And you even had a parallax background scrolling in there as well and oh, yeah, um, yeah. stuff like the bubbles floating over the background, I remember too. I mean, was there any kind of tricks that you had to employ to get these effects in the game? Oh, yeah, yeah. And we, we also discovered uh, uh, it was kind of a video glitch with the Sega Genesis um, that was only being exploited by Sega at the time for doing kind of artificial glass. 
because the Sega doesn't have a transparency like that, but the way the, the Genesis works is if you space white lines one pixel apart from each other, you can get a glass effect. But what we discovered at Virgin is if you put two different colors together with that same effect, you could get a color bleed, which would give you more colors on the Sega Genesis than technically you were supposed to have. That's why the games coming out of Virgin actually look more colorful than what other developers were producing at the time. And if you if you actually look at the sprite sheets for like uh, Jungle Book, Cool Spot, Aladdin, uh, you'll see the there's actually these bands of lines in in the artwork that look kind of weird, but if you take into consideration that bleeding effect that the Genesis does, it explains why we're getting more colors than we should be getting. And it really did help with that kind of, you know, the, the authentic animation look. It made them look like, you know, there could be cartoons on TV. Exactly. Well, we actually, for, for Aladdin, we actually did start off with Disney animations. And Mike Deeks, our lead animator, actually flew to Florida to work with the animation team who worked on Aladdin to... Uh, produce the animations we needed for the game and then we had to reduce them down but unfortunately at the time the technology for for shrinking things down wasn't the best so a lot of quality was kind of lost so our art team at Virgin had to take each of the sprites and clean them up a lot to get them into the game and get them back looking the way they should. Well, as well as a visual look, I mean, the, the sound effects and the music was also really high quality as well. I remember, you know, playing Cool Spot, I remember there's so much in that game. Um, what was kind of the approach to that then? Was that again to try and make these like, you know, like cartoons almost? Well, uh, anytime we dealt with the Disney products, um, we wanted to follow as close to what the original movie was as possible. So really that was their starting point is what was the movie and then kind of making the sounds from there. And the ending of Cool Spot was a, a bit of a unique one. I remember you had to take a picture of the screen and then send it in to get like a, a grand prize. I mean, did, did anyone ever win that prize, do you know? I don't really know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I just remember that when we finished up, 7up uh, was so happy. They, they sent us like phones and action figures and T-shirts and coffee mugs. and. <laughs> well, you know, I remember playing the, uh, the old Activision games. And to get your badge, because they had patches they would give you for high scores. And we had to take pictures of the screen with our high score and send them in to, to get our patches. Well, you know, when you're making a game like this, it's got these high you know, quality animations and sound effects and everything. Was it important to implement a design Bible? And was the process of storyboarding and designing quite complex? Um, most of the des uh, design documents that we did at Virgin Games were mainly for license or approval. Um, like they, they produced the, the design Bible for Aladdin and then I was asked to do one level design, one big level design and then that was submitted to Disney for licensing approval. And once they looked at that, everything was kind of a go from them. And then we, we would use the Bible as far as knowing you know what level was here, there, and so on in transitions. But the design Bibles we had were, were nothing compared to some of the design Bibles I've done since. Well, around that time in the early 90s, I mean, that was really, you know, one of the golden age for platform games, really. Um, uh -huh. Around that time, I mean, there was a lot of innovation and good design that we saw, and you know, everyone was aiming for, like, the next big thing. I mean, can you kind of remember any, any other platformers that you were looking at around that time that you thought really pushed new ideas? Um, well, I was looking at uh, Blackthorn from Interplay, 
and that was one I liked. And then, of course, uh, Heart of the Alien was one of my favorites. I just, I just like the cinematic flavor of it. I, I thought it was, it was more focused on really having deep gameplay where it was more, you just kind of take your time, figure out where things are. And it was really learning from those games that I approached the, the design for Abe's Odyssey. Yeah, except we're very atmospheric as well. I remember, you know, the prequel to that. Um, it was called Another World Over Here. I think it was Out of This World in American Flashback as well. I remember being very cinematic. Yeah, Flash, Flashback was another one, yeah. And then there was, uh, of course, there was Heart of Darkness, which uh, I got a copy of the demo disc at E3 for that game. And I, I had it on my desk almost religiously when I was designing Abe's Odyssey because I thought that was going to be my main competition uh, hitting the market. But that project kept getting delayed and delayed and delayed, and then Abe's Odyssey actually came out before it. Well, at what point did you meet Dave Perry and start working with him? Um, Dave Perry came over for Global Gladiators, and uh, that was his first project over there at Virgin. I mean, I learned so much from him because he had been in the industry a lot longer than I had, so he was more keen on, you know, how to approach projects, you know, and how to kind of organize your time and stuff like that. So he he was kind of my mentor in the in the technical side of things, and we we got along great because he he'd come to my office and he go, I got this wacky idea like for Cool Spot, he comes to my office and he goes, Cool Spot rolls around, but I have it in my mind that there's a level, where he rolls and he can break out of the roll, but if he stops he'll go back into a roll, and I have no idea what the level is going to be or how it's going to be, but there's your mechanic. Give me a level design. <laughs> <laughs> See, I think even that, I mean, the fact that Cool Spot was literally just a little dot on a, on a can of, you know, soft drink. It was bringing that to life and giving him a personality and everything. That's, uh, it must have been quite, quite a challenge, I guess. Oh, yeah, but we had, we had a really, really great uh, art group, and they, they could make anything shine. But well, then, obviously, I mean, we talked we talked briefly a moment ago about these big Disney licenses, um, Jungle Book as well. I mean, that that, that was huge. Obviously, one of, one of Disney's biggest ever movies. Um, mm-hmm. Did they kind of have their their own requests, and did everything have to be like meticulously checked by Disney? And how much involvement did they have, like day to day, on on the game? Again, it wasn't it wasn't much at all. But the the, the weird thing about uh, Jungle Book was when we finished up Cool Spot, we went on to doing Jungle Book. And I did like four or five level designs on that, and we were working on mechanics. And of course, that was another uh, David Perry uh, led project. And just after we got about that far along, is when we got the contract to do Aladdin. And so they basically took all my designs, my design Bible, and basically said, Well, we're going to send this to the UK to be finished. Um, you guys, your whole team's going on to Aladdin because that is our A number one priority. And I had loved the movie, and the nice thing was, too, in, in designing the levels for the game, is Disney actually had sent us these huge colored printouts for all of the backgrounds for the, for the movie. So it was easy for me to kind of look at the backgrounds and go, okay, this is, this is the environment I need to make gameplay out of. I guess that's really useful rather than having to kind of imagine it all yourself. Well, yeah, and if and there's only so much you can do with the, you know watching the videotape over and over again because, you know, it's you're you're seeing little glimpses glimpses of it versus these big animation cells that they use for actually doing the movie. Yeah, but then I, I guess it was still the age of them doing most of it by hand. Yeah, and it was it was all done by hand back then because 
even then the it was still kind of the war between uh, people using computers to animate stuff and traditional hand animations. I always like the look of hand animation though. Yeah, yeah, you can always tell. Well, do you remember working with Tommy Tallarico much, and what did you think of his music, especially because Jungle Bug had like you know such recognizable music? Well, uh, me and Tommy have worked together for a long time on projects. It's it's always been great. I mean, he was. Originally, he was a playtester at Virgin Games, and then he branched into doing music. And he worked on every single game I worked on at Virgin Games. And when I started doing Maximo Ghost to Glory for Capcom, uh, I pulled him in to do the music for that as well. Tommy will just basically say, he'll come in and says, okay, you know, show me what you're working on, and give me, give me a tempo. Show me, show me what kind of beat you're thinking about for this, this project, and bang, he'll, he'll crank it out. Well, I mean, we, we've I've talked about Aladdin already, but that obviously went on to become, um, you know, one of the best-selling Mega Drive games ever. I mean, four million copies sold of that game. I mean, did working on Jungle Book before that help with the development of Aladdin? It did and it didn't, because the the main problem we had with Aladdin is we only had three and a half months to get it done. So it was it was major crunch from the time the contract was approved to getting that out the door. And how did you so, manage to get it done in four months? Uh, well, we, we had pretty much all hands on deck at Virgin, and we had the full background art team, the full uh, animation group, uh, of course, Tommy doing his stuff, and just I, am, I had two other assistant designers helping with level designs. And the game turned out to be a masterpiece. I mean, it was very well received as well. I mean, were there some kind of tough decisions to make along the way when you were developing that game? Um, not really. I mean, it... it for a production standpoint, uh, we had all the documentations, all the level designs were done out, so it was really just pretty much paint by numbers to get it done, um, and then just make sure it was debugged right. Um, the only controversy that even popped up during the whole production was the uh, the bonus screen we have has a kind of a roulette wheel, and in the design it was supposed to be a one-armed bandit. And somewhere along the lines, Disney had showed it to some group of parents or something as trying to kind of get their feedback at some focus group test. And one of the mothers who had seen it uh, hit the wall and basically called up Disney and said, I'm going to boycott your game because it's got gambling in your game and, and we can't have gambling in a, in a Disney product. So in the final product, we just took the handle off the machine. <laughs> I guess that's one thing you've got to consider as well when you're working with like you know a brand like Disney. You've got this wholesome family reputation to uphold. I mean, I guess little things like that just have to be taken into consideration. Yeah, and there was one other thing that came out of the focus group test, which was the first focus group test I'd been involved in, which was really educational, is when we did the focus group test, we did different ages of boys and girls. And Disney really wanted a lot of the story in the game. So there was a lot of pop-up windows with dialogue text and stuff going on throughout the whole game. And what we found out in the focus group text test was the, uh, the boys would hit skip right away. They were the skip, 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 skip. They didn't want to read nothing. They just wanted to play. And the girls, on the other hand, they would read every, every sentence. <laughs> they were really into it. So what came out of the focus group test was we had to scale back the amount of text that was in the game because there was a lot. And the movie had already been out. People already knew the story. So I think a lot of it was they just wanted to play. 
And it's nice to have the story, and some people will read it and some people won't, but I think it's going to be a button masher to get past it. Well, I mean, as if it wasn't, you know, pressure enough to get Aladdin made in four months. I mean, Lion King came along next, and Disney wanted to launch the game at the same time as the home video release. And did that kind of pile the pressure on again? Well, I wasn't, I actually left at the end of Aladdin. Yeah, because uh, David Perry had left uh, to form Shiny, and a lot of the team had followed him to do that. And I was kind of left there at Virgin Games, and they had kind of made me a teacher. Well, not kind of, did. And they were hiring story writers out of Hollywood and people who knew how to do scripts and stuff, but not, not traditionally trained game designers. And Virgin wanted to expand big time. So as the senior game designer for the studio, they had me teaching classes on how to design games. And that was not something I wanted to do at all. And when The Lion King came up, I was excited to, to go, go on to that project as the lead. And then I was told, no, you're not going to lead it. You're going to continue teaching. And we're going to let somebody else lead Lion King. So I was like, all right, well, <laughs> time to move on. <laughs> and that's a story, you know, we hear so much from people who, who get brought into a company to do something and they're brilliant at it. But then for some, you know, misguided management takes them off it and puts them into a department that they're not interested in. It's just strange. Yeah. Yeah. And with most of my team already taken off to shiny, it, it was kind of a lonely place. So it was kind of like, you know, everybody that I, I was making all these hit games with were gone and well, I wasn't going to go with shiny. So it was like, what do I do? And then I got an offer from Spectrum Holobyte to go over to there and work for them. So I thought, oh, okay, I'll give that a try. <laughs> well, there was a rumor as well. I remember reading around the time that, you know, around that point of Virgin, there was rumors of an Aladdin 2 design that was kind of had pre-rendered animations, a bit like Donkey Kong Country. I mean, did you know anything about that or, or have any involvement with that? No, there was no such thing. There we go. Cleared up that rumor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was, there was never never any kind of plans for an Aladdin 2. If it was, it, it might have been bantered around on Disney side, but um, nobody at Virgin talked about her. There was Cool Spot 2. I, I was that wasn't a game I really followed myself because um, after Full Spot One was a real hit, I wanted to do the sequel of it and kind of expand upon the way it was. But the people at Virgin, the hierarchies, had gone to one of the game shows and they had seen an isometric game that they had fallen in love with, and they came back and said, "Well, we want Full Spot Two to be this isometric game." And I said, well, that's great, but I don't see that being the sequel to Cool Spot. You know, if you want to do an isometric game with Cool Spot and call it something else, that's fine. But I still think we should strike while the iron's hot and do another sequel to the platformer. But I was overruled. <laughs> I think you're right, though, especially when you, you know you get one game and you like it, so you want to get the sequel. You kind of do expect more of the same thing, just improved, don't you? Yeah, and changing the play dynamics completely 180 was not something I was interested in. Around that time, I mean, there was a lot of changes in terms of game design, particularly when 3D, you know, started to come in. Um, and then moving to the PlayStation platform, I mean, do you remember the first time you saw the PlayStation and what you thought of it? Um, I loved it because of its capabilities. I did uh, Abe's Odyssey that was on that platform as well. So it was nice to be able to use the capability of the cinematics with actual gameplay. Well, tell us how you got involved with the Abe's Odyssey project and, and working on the PlayStation. Well, I was working for a small studio called Alexandria Incorporated in Central California at the time. And I just uh, wrapped up a game called Izzy for U.S. Gold through them. 
around that time, Sherry McKenna and Lauren Lanning uh, came to Central California to meet with the owners of Alexandria. They introduced me to Sherry and Lauren and said that, you know, they were going to build a, a new game company and stuff, and they wanted to kind of show them Alexandria and kind of learn what was going on and kind of see if there was some synergy where uh, Lauren and Sherry would produce the graphics and Alexandria would produce the code and, you know, put the game together. Um, but that, that synergy never worked out. So they, they decided that they were going to create their own game, a game company called Oddworld. And around that time, I was looking at what Alexandria was doing, and really they were having a big trouble finding another contract. And it looked like they might be closing their doors because if they can't get work in, you know, we were in big trouble. So I kind of put the word out in the recruiter circle that, you know, I was looking to move on. And Lauren and Sherry found out about it and said, mm, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they contacted the venture capital company and said, no, we, uh, we want him designing the gameplay for our product. And that's how I came to work on Abe's Odyssey. And the design of Abe himself, I mean, he was, he was a departure from platform characters that we'd seen before. I mean, you know, we had like, you know, uh, Furry Sonic the Hedgehog and uh, Little Mario. Then, then this kind of slimy character came along that was, huh. was a little bit gross. I mean, what was kind of the thinking behind his, his design? Well, that, that all that stuff came from Lauren and his group. So that was, that was already established before I kind of came into the mix. So I, I really didn't have a hand in that. Uh, my job was... They, they came in and they wanted the gameplay, but they needed some common sense on how to do it because they wanted to make this 3D game, but 3D at the time wasn't capable of the quality of graphics Lauren and Sherry demanded. So what I proposed to them was, well, let's, let's kind of do a hybrid here. We'll do the best rendered graphics we can off these SGI systems, and we'll put them into you know, this platform game environment like flashback, like out of this world. And to get the illusion that it's a 3D game, uh, what I proposed is we do cinematic cuts between one level section and another. So you get these nice panoramic views of the world as you move from one section to another. And it, it worked out beautifully. And that game just had such atmosphere as well. And I think maybe it was a demographic of the PlayStation because, you know, gamers were kind of growing up a little bit, although not too much because I remember, you know, as a teenage boy, whenever Abe farted, it, it never got old. It made me laugh every time. So. <laughs> I mean, was that an, an idea to make it a bit more mature than the games that came before it in a way? Well, visually, visually it was going to be more mature. And we knew that the, the game systems were kind of evolving and, and the audience, the players were growing up with the systems. So we knew we could do more, but we didn't want to go too crazy and, and basically alienate the market. So Abe has kind of this cute persona along with kind of the dark world. And, and even today, it seems like it's, it's still kind of following in there. It's, it's got a bit of that darkness, but it, it doesn't cross the line where you go, eh, you know, that's, that's kind of grotesque. Well, during the production, I heard that an executive producer at GT Interactive tried to sabotage the game. I mean, what, what kind of happened there? That sounds like quite a bit of drama. Well, yeah, there was, there was a big, big problem with the way it was being marketed at the time because uh, originally uh, it was pitched to Sony. And I, I don't know the, the, the political dynamics of it, but there was, there was something about Lauren trying to negotiate with Microsoft to kind of do it as a Microsoft exclusive. 
And so there was a, there was kind of this waffling back and forth, and I think a lot of publishers felt that they were getting burned. And I think when it ended up at GT, it was kind of like, you know what? We don't like working with Oddworld. We don't like this situation. And, you know, how can we kind of drag this on? And I think I, I heard at the time, I'm not sure, so it's don't quote this as fact, um, is they had a three-project contract with GT Interactive that if they published Abe's Odyssey, they were supposed to do like three more games or two more games. Hmm. And they had such a rough time on getting the original Abe's Odyssey out the door that they, they didn't want to do another two projects. It was just such an unpleasant experience. Yeah, but I'd, I'd left the company by that time, so... <laughs> When the game did come out, I mean, you know, Abe's Odyssey was a massive hit. I mean, was it kind of expected that it would be as big as it did? Oh, yeah, because the, the feedback we got from even Sony from looking at the design Bible we produced and the early feedback we got from bringing people in to show them the graphics that were being done and stuff like that was, was tremendous. I mean, and even when it was showed at E3, the excitement people had for the game was just explosive. So we, we knew it was going to be a hit. It was just, we just had to get our job done. Well, it's had a bit of a comeback in recent years. I mean, have you played any of the, the modern, the remakes of uh, Abe's Odyssey? Not really, no. In some ways, I, I like it, and in some ways, I don't. Because um, Lauren Lanning is, is such a visionary when it comes to coming up with wacky ideas and stories. And some of the stuff we talked about doing when I worked for him at the company was just phenomenal and a lot of a lot of our kind of strife at the time is I wanted to get the game design done for Abe's Odyssey and then I wanted to go and start working on the newer ones and the new ideas he had and he just kept Abe's Odyssey, Abe's Odyssey, Abe's Odyssey and really it's kind of he's kind of stuck in that rut in that world and even the game they did I think it was called Stranger kind of still has a bit of that world Abe's Odyssey world feel to it but I really wanted to see what Oddworld could do if he just said, well, okay, let's create all these wacky ideal worlds that we've been thinking about. But it's really, over the years, it's just been that same note over and over and over again. And I really, to this day, I would prefer him just going, we made, we made our history with this one. Let's move on to something new. I guess sometimes audience demand can be something you give into, I guess. And I mean, I think even with that as well, bringing back... Uh, a franchise that you know is kind of ingrained in people's nostalgia. Um, sometimes, if you make a departure too much, it, it can be a bit of a shock to people. I guess maybe. Yeah, and you have you have to be careful because yeah. what what games were a hit back then may not be up to snuff now. Yeah. You have to know how to take a concept that existed back then and evolve it up to today's future. Well, why did you make? Awaken Games then? Did you want to have the freedom of self-publishing? I, it wasn't so much self-publishing because I'm still you know, in contact with other publishers. And Awaken Games contracts game design services to other studios. Right. So companies will come to me with an idea and I will produce the game design documents and the designs and stuff for them. And I have a few of my own games that I'm working on. But the main reason I started that one was I was working for a small game studio doing casual games. Uh, like Game Party. I created the Game Party franchise for the Nintendo Wii and stuff like that. And it was it was another one of these crunch games where you got a limited budget, you got a limited team, you got to get it done in a really ridiculous short period of time. And it, it made a, 
obscene amount of money. <laughs> so it did what everybody wanted it to do. But as things kind of evolved and we started getting into licenses again, and like I, I did the game Hotel for Dogs, and I, I created a tremendous design for that project as well. But then the producer came in and just gutted the hell out of the design to the point where it was just unplayable. And it just it got to the point where I was just so discouraged having my designs trashed that I thought, you know what, I'm just going to create my own design studio. If somebody wants a design for the product, I'll do it and just leave it at that. That way I can kind of go, if it's a great idea, I'll work on it. If I don't think it's a great idea, I'll be honest with you. I'll tell you that, you know, you need to work on it more <laughs> and then I can just kind of pick and choose. I mean, looking at your, your site, I mean, you also do um, consulting on game design and helping projects develop as well, which, which must be quite, quite a rewarding experience. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the other interesting thing is, too, is I get companies who will contact me about that really have nothing to do with games. It's just interactivity on their websites. And they'll go, well, you design video games. Uh, take a look at our website. How can we make it more engaging to people visiting? Right. And I'll... I'll do contracts like that with people, too. <laughs> and any projects that we, we might know of that you've worked on recently, then, that you've enjoyed? For the past few years, I've been working on kind of boning up my programming skills uh, because I'm, I'm moving more from just doing designs to doing full productions. So I've got, I've got a big RTS game I'm working on called Alien Harvest, and that's probably going to be the most massive project I've done to date. And that's uh, more of a... Kind of a Command and Conquer style, but it's also a vast universe game as well. But it's it's one of those ones that I'm I'm trying to get all the details down and all the documentation down. So when I hit the ground running, you know, it's everything's laid out. I don't have to guess how this thing works with this and that. And because you you see a lot of these RTS games that people are doing Kickstarter campaigns for and stuff like that, and they're they're getting millions of dollars for stuff, but they really don't have a plan outside of just some nice fancy images of what they want to create. And then people scratch their heads wondering why the game never got done. <laughs> and it sounds like with this project as well, I mean, doing an RTS game, you're kind of going back to your roots, I guess, aren't you? Well, that was the idea. That was the idea is get back to my passion. Because I've, I've got a few casual games on my, on my website that you can go and see, a few puzzle games and stuff like that. Those were mainly done as kind of learning exercises as I kind of tick around with art and learning how to program more. Because my, my programming background back with the Ataris was in 6502 assembly language. And, you know, so it was really, really hardcore programming back yeah, then. Banging the metal. <laughs> yeah. And nowadays, you know, we've got tools. We've got Unity. We've got Unreal. And, you know, we could have only dreamed of tools like that when, when I was growing up. Yeah, I mean, games are a lot bigger now as well, though, isn't it? A lot more in them. Oh, yeah. Well, in, in, some, in, in retrospect, the games are getting simpler, but the market's gotten huger. Yeah. <laughs> because there's, uh, there's so many casual games. I, I forget what somebody was telling me, how many games were published on Steam per day or something like that. And it was some obscene number. <laughs> And I think it's kind of cool because it's turned everybody into a gamer. It's like, you know, even people say, oh, I'm not into video games. And like you see them playing Candy Crush or something on the phone. You're like, what, well, you're playing a game there? Well, yeah. And the, and the nice thing, I mean, the benefit, it, it has its pros and cons. The, the pros are we're seeing ideas come to video gaming that never would have seen the light of day before these tools came out. Because they would have just been too difficult for people to afford the tools, 
to get the art together, to do all of this stuff. But now, kids in you know twelve year old, nine year old, they can they can actually make their own games from their own imagination, and we can see it. Uh, the flip side of that is it has really starved the game industry market of money because uh, when Apple started putting games out at 99 cents, it's like, well, how can small developers compete with that? Because we can never sell enough games to pay a staff. So now you got EA and companies like that. They're the only ones that can really afford having big staff and even they're struggling because unless they're focused on a AAA title, yeah, you know, the games they're working on, it's going to go straight to mobile and, you know, loot crate and all this other stuff just to try and make a living. I guess that's why we see, like, you know, Call of Duty, like, part 9,000 or something every year, isn't it? Oh, yeah, because yeah. they're they're just going to milk it as long as it's paying the bills. Well, William, it's been wonderful getting your stories. And, you know, it's great that you still got this passion for uh, for games as well. Um, if people want to keep up to date with um, what you're up to, I mean, do you tweet? Do you have a website? Is it What's the best place to find out? Yeah, you can find me at awakengames.com. Excellent. I'll put that in our show notes as well. People want to check that out. Thank you so much for being our guest this week. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, great talking to you too.